The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Thursday morning, the 20th of July. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. In 2020, a man was convicted of raping an elderly woman in the nursing home he was working in. The woman who has been given a pseudonym, Emily, has since deceased. The horrific assault of this vulnerable person shocked the country and prompted two separate investigations. Let's speak to Fine Gael TD for Loud and East Mead, Fergus O'Dowd, about this. A very good morning to you, Fergus O'Dowd, and thanks for joining us. Uh, the HSE has said that another 21 cases of suspected physical or sexual assaults of residents at the same nursing home have been referred to Gardaí. Uh, that, uh, I think, is exceptionally disturbing, isn't it? It is, Michael, and it's not just that. In fact, there appears to be a number of files which have not been looked at. The reason I'm not clear on what they're saying is that the the original process didn't have enough time to look at all of the other files that were there, but they're up to, I think, 70-plus files that need to be looked at as well. And that's one of the reasons why the HSC have appointed an external uh, person to look at the to to advise them as to whether they should look at these files or not. But I don't believe uh, that an expert person is top class. I don't think they need. I'm sure advice would be the same as you and I would give them. Look at them all. You must get to the bottom of this. That's at you the know, same nursing home, is it? It is yes. Okay, because home. because 21 yeah. cases have reached the threshold in the view of the HSE that warrants reporting it to the Gardaí, calling in the guards. In other words, to look at what happened to these 21 residents of a nursing home. There was a, a, another two incidents uh, that they say didn't reach the threshold, uh, but this report uh, says as well that uh, one of the residents' files had sections missing. Yes, it does, and that's why they, they put it on the, uh, the list as a possible crime. But they, then they say later in the report that they found uh, the missing part of the file and they no longer believe that there could have been a, a, you know, a criminal act carried out from that individual. But you see, the point is, they, they're of the files that they looked at. I think it's about 35 files they looked at. They got 21 names. But there are other files there from the time that Mr. Z, as he was called, was he's employed there since 2014. He was there for a long, long time. Uh, and they should go back into every single file. And I believe that's what they will do. And we'll have that report in a few weeks. But it just shows you how a male evil predator can dominate the lives of so many people. And that notwithstanding the fact that at least 11, 11 of those people, uh, there are file notes on their allegations of rape and sexual abuse uh, against this person, uh, they weren't believed. And that's the other awful mm. thing that's at the heart of this, Michael. Yeah, and, that's, and that is the reason, is it not, why he was able to repeat yes. offending? Because when the residents complained, people talk, they were talking nonsense. Exactly, because they suffered from, they may have had dementia, they mm. may have had memory loss, they may have had mentally, mental health issues. And rather than treating them as being in their home, 
where they lived, they treated it as if it was part of a medical condition. And that's what the report actually stresses, that people in care, in in homes, they should be treated as being in a home, in their Mm. own home and not in a hospital, because it isn't a hospital. But it'll mean that allegations of sexual abuse uh, will be treated more seriously because they wouldn't be saying, well, I wonder is this tablet or is it that illness or whatever. And the other point is that if, if people say that they have been sexually abused, you must believe them and you must carry out a full appropriate investigation until you find otherwise. Mm. What you don't do is you find reasons for not doing it or explanations for it. Mm. I think that's a key point uh, on it, Michael, as well. Can you actually believe that over 90 patients have said that something happened? I find it I find it impossible. You know, because um, I know an awful lot of people who work in nursing homes. Mm. I know how committed they are to mm. the work, how, how caring they are. And mm. you know from meeting parents and from other, obviously, from mm. their children as well. And it's not an easy uh, job. How much they respect yeah. the staff mm. that they have and how dedicated they are. And yeah. there's no doubt about it. But, like, you know, this was an evil monster. It's very hard. Like, he had his own evil prison for them because, as the report points out, the lady that he raped at four o'clock in the morning, he knew he knew that if she pressed the alarm bell, nobody would hear it. He knew nobody could see him going into a room because the CCTV on the door of that bedroom uh, was only seen in the in the assistant director's office, and nobody could see it. He knew that the person who was to help him on his duty uh, didn't make it and wasn't at work. So he had complete and absolute and total evil control over that woman. Mm. And now he got his 11 years in jail, but I think that's not half enough, to be honest. Um, mm. But like, it's just it's just unbelievable that a person, that a person can do such a thing and do it to so many people. Now, the point is to say they can't prove without, beyond reasonable doubt, that he did do, that he did do what the other allegations started made against mm. him. But the, the independent investigation finds that they have no doubt about it but that he did, and his demeanour after he raped that lady, when he came out, um, he went back to work as if nothing had happened. And what they say in the report, that this is something he obviously did a lot of the time. And you see, the other point, Michael, is that a lot of people don't, don't, I find it very hard to understand why people would sexually abuse anybody. I mean, some years ago, when we were told that sexual abuse was happening in church institutions, a lot of us didn't believe it could be as true as it turned out to be. Mm. And it turned out to be a, an evil presence in many, many yeah. religious and other institutions. Mm. So the same, I believe, is true, unfortunately, of, of, of nursing home care. And, um, you know, we, we just have to be more alert. People have to be educated. Like, I mean, simple things like the design of a building, you know, that, that the cameras that monitor bedrooms, and I'm talking about externally, not in the bedroom itself, that no matter where you are in a, in a nursing home, you know, if you're a nurse or a, a care healthcare assistant, that you can see who's going into what room. You know, just simple things like that. Being able to view what's going on in a corridor. You know, I think in the nursing home, concerned that they put a new, they knock down the wall and put a new observation platform in that, they could see everything. So there's lots of issues. But the main thing is to train people, to believe people when they tell them that they've been raped or sexually assaulted, that it has happened. 
and obviously you know to have you know to have better training as well you know you know and, but I mean could you pick out this Mr. Z mm. you know they say and they quote that he was a good Christian hard-working man uh, you know so he had he had a marvelous uh, profile for people obviously none of whom knew him what he really was Mm. But he was really a most evil boy perpetrator. Yeah, it's not a question of vetting or anything like that. He didn't have a, a previous record, uh, but obviously... He uh, from that perspective, yeah. Uh, a, war, a, war, a warped plan. mind, if ever there was. He had to plan it. He had to... This is what he lived. This was his life. This was what he did, mm. you know. And it's just hard to fathom. Mm. And then, thankfully, there's very few people like him. Yeah. It's hard to fathom, and as you say, 40 years ago, uh, when uh, revelations of uh, institutional sex a- abuse came about, people found it hard to believe. Uh, we shouldn't be as surprised today, as horrific as this is, as warped as this is. And if it happened once to one woman or possibly 22 women or possibly more than 90 women in the one nursing home raped by the same man, potentially. Uh, Well, then uh, there has to be a question as to whether it's happening elsewhere in nursing homes. There's no doubt it is. There's no doubt it is. Uh, But the question is, you know, we have to, you know, where people are much more alert. If it's the same as child sexual abuse, people are much more alert to it now, much more aware everywhere about child sexual abuse and uh, hopefully a positive issue arising from this, they will become aware that it's the power imbalance between the sexual abuser and, in this case, the older person, that that's where they get their motivation. Um, and to be aware that, that that is always a possibility and to make sure to make sure that you make people safe. And that's why we need the Safeguarding Authority that's United, we need a commission to look. These are commitments which the government make, which I'm holding them to, uh, to examine the care and supports for older people. The other point, Michael, is that mm. this nursing home, and I have to be careful that I can't yes. identify mm. no, of course not. Uh, mm. very shortly after the court case was inspected by HICWA, mm. and two inspectors went in there, and they gave it a clean bill of health. Now, all those files would have been there as they were there later. And as part of their job, surely, after a guy gets 11 years of jail for sexual assault, you know, did they know that that court case had taken place? Were they told that that it had taken place? Mm. You know, what did they know? So so they're the regulator as well. I'm not saying, you know, they only come in once a year. But like when they do go in, they have to look for all of this evidence. And even if we assume that they did their job, maybe it's a different job of work that they should be tasked to do. I think that's the point you're making, is it? Yeah, it's it's basically, it's basically, there were 11 files there all along. And what happened to these files is that they were written up and they they were left to gather dust. Right, so he could come in and they're supposed to look at their job is to look at complaints and serious issues that arise during the course of an inspection. So this, those files, they should have asked. Or maybe they asked them and they weren't showing them. That, that's not, I don't know. But this is what has to come out in this inquiry. But like, then the people who knew, 
if I, if somebody complained to me that they had been sexually abused in a nursing home and I was in that home as, a, as an officer or whatever it was, walking there, um, I have a duty to report that to the Gardaí or, you know, or to investigate it uh, more appropriately than just writing it up and doing nothing about it. So there's an obligation on people who are told these stories to make sure that action was taken. And no action was taken, Michael. That's mm. the sad part. So yeah. there's, a huge, there's a huge crisis here of, of confidence in the system. And I regret very much that happened anywhere. But, like, I mean, HS, this is a HSE home. Mm. You know, it's run by you and me. We're the people who are directly responsible for mm. it. Mm. And this, this is what yeah. happened. And that's why, that's why, that's why I, get, I get angry at this. That, mm. You know, that we need to do more. We need to be more vigilant. And we need... Well, what I'm doing in my own political party is I raised it at the Fine Gael party meeting. We we set up a committee. We did an initial report, and we'll have another report uh, by, by, by the beginning of September uh, for action on, on all of these things. Uh, you know, and, and I do know, and I want to stress that Mary yeah. Butler, who is the minister, I've always found her very open and, and concerned about the issues that to bring to her attention. Um, so like, there's a lot of goodwill out there for change, but, mm. but, but, the, but the, to drive the energy to insist on it, you know, we, we, we isn't, isn't 100% across, across the government do you think, and across the HSE. Do you think that we um, treat uh, rape uh, as seriously as we ought to treat it in a criminal sense. You said you believe the 11-year sentence that this man received was not uh, enough. It was a heinous crime uh, against the most vulnerable person, an elderly lady resident in a, a nursing home. Uh, but realistically, that was quite a, a stiff sentence, wasn't it? We've been talking about Christian Brothers uh, an awful lot over the course of uh, the last few weeks um, because of the Brother Garby issue and so on. Um, but we, we we heard, for example, a 13-year-old boy being whipped in a, a dungeon by a sadomasochist paedophile uh, wearing nothing but a, a leather tongue uh, with a, a cat of nine tails uh, and six- and seven-year-olds being fondled in classrooms and all, all of this sort of stuff. But in those cases, you were talking about three-years or four-year sentences. I agree, but I mean that that poor he was a boy when he he was raped by that Christian brother, but he was his father had died and this was the school principal. Maria had taken him and had been a been a father figure to him and then abusing him so evilly, you know. Mm. I just think, you know, I, I I certainly feel very strongly about stronger sentences, longer sentences. But but this this guy, Mr. Zed, I mean, he's a serial rapist really. You know, no, I know mm. we can't prove that legally, but like, yeah. there is the evidence that's believed to be there. But, I mean, I think he should get 20 years, to be honest with you, if he should ever get out at all. I mean, like as as the head of the uh, Mr. Gloucester from the HSE, when he said uh, that this woman, um, you know, that she was in the place where she needed the greatest care and that's where she suffered the most evil harm. You know, you can imagine a woman in her 80s, you know, be raped at four o'clock in the morning by an evil gentleman who, who nobody, you know, nobody believed that he did the things that were reported before. Mm. Like he was, he he was all powerful yeah. at home. Mm. He was just. It's no, just it's dreadful. Evil. It's dreadful. Um, 
I, I, I don't want to put you on the spot and perhaps I could ask you to come back a, a, another time unless you sure. uh, feel that you want to talk about Brother Garvey uh, because you would have sat and draw the borough councillor I think in 1997 when he was given yep. the freedom of the city. Uh, I, 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 I take it from the response uh, you gave there to Ken Grace's story uh, that you're off fay with it. Do you have a, a, any thoughts on rece- rescinding that honour? Well, I think first of all, like I, I, I think the first point I would like to say is that you know the Christian Brothers did a lot of good in the past, and it's a smaller number of them they did an awful lot of harm. I mean, I went to the Christian Brothers. I had some great teachers there, and I had some really tough ones as well. Everybody else in tried it. Everybody else mm. knows that the vast majority of them were good. I have no doubt about it. But the order the name of the order and the good that they did. For, you know, I, I think it was the 1860s to were formed. People would never have got an education without them, you know, from mm. about 1850 to 1950. There was no way you'd get teaching. Mm. But is, it, is it, so, sorry, yeah. is it right that Drahada honours a person who's blocking cha- children but, uh, for, yeah. who were abused no, by brothers from getting justice? I, I just yeah. come to that point because I think it's important sure. to stress the good work that they have done as well. And I'm not avoiding the issue. Sure. At all, I I I I think he should hand it back. Yes, I think he should, um, because I mean it looks like that they found a legal strategy that you have to sue every. Say there was, I don't know how many Christian but they all have to be sued individually, uh, and uh, which is which is a, a mechanism for avoiding the truth and the integrity of. of they have to accept responsibility for what they've done. And I think it would be morally acceptable if he did hand it back. You know, I, I think so, yes. Yes, okay. it would, yeah. Okay. Uh, as I say, I didn't mean to put you on the spot about that, but you did seem... you on the spot, Michael. Yeah. I just want to... Yeah, I, 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 I actually hadn't you know. intended to ask you that myself. Uh, I just want to say yeah. something to you that you yeah. don't know. Uh, it, it, I, I had three uncles who were Christian brothers, right? Mm. Um, and and uh, when we were young... They were always, you know, they were always highly valued visitors to a home. They were all, to the best of my knowledge, good people, you know. And I've known a lot of Christian brothers in my life, and the vast majority of them were good. But the evil that has been done has damaged all of those people and damaged their reputation. And I think it would be appropriate that they would hand that back. And they have to rebuild their order in a new way. You know, if, if that's the case, but well, I just want to stress that point. So, okay. Uh, uh, and would you go further? Uh, should it be rescinded, or should it be a voluntary uh, well, thing? Whatever the process is, like, um, yeah, I, I'm not involved in the council. No, I understand. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't have a problem. Yeah, I don't have a problem that he would. I think they should look. Come here. I, I think he should. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Or, or that, or that the council rescind it if he doesn't. Yeah, I wouldn't have an issue with that, Michael, okay. at all. Sure. I think that would be appropriate at this stage. OK, yeah. thank you very much indeed. Uh, and uh, I, I think that's a message that will be heard loud and clear, as indeed uh, the discussion we had about Emily oh, and the concern that there must be for our residents. You've always been very open on these issues and you've always been available to air them. I think it's really a very useful value that you that you take an interest in these and that the people can listen you know, get to understand what the truth and the ultimate truth out there is. Okay, so well, people have to be responsible for their actions. 
Thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning. Fine Gael TD for Loud and East Meath. Fergus O'Dowd. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, on Monday evening, a uh, bus left Dundalk, the 167 to RD at 9.15. Uh, along uh, the journey, uh, very tall man, probably about six foot tall, a big stocky fella, off his head, got onto the bus and uh, was really just um, horrible to listen to. All sorts of expletives uh, and children on the bus, by the way. Uh, the bus driver uh, asked the man to watch his language, which I'm sure uh, everybody would uh, agree. Uh, it was public transport and getting on the bus like that and you know, upsetting uh, people and uh, really acting in a way that was not appropriate around children. Anyway, the response to the bus driver was, this man spat at the bus driver. Uh, and the bus driver got up and said, what, what, what? And next of all, he got a, a punch in the face. He's out of work. And he's not the first uh, driver based in Dundalk. Let's uh, speak to the union. Tom O'Connor of the NBRU, the National Bus and Rail Workers Union, is on the line. Good morning to you, Tom, and thanks for joining us. Uh, this was a, a dreadful incident, a, a fairly serious assault. Uh, the bus driver, I'm sure, will testify, uh, given that it was serious enough for him to be out of work. But it, it's the fourth such assault on bus drivers based in Dundalk in the last six months. Is that correct? Uh, good morning, Michael. Yeah, that's correct. And, and unfortunately, the, it, not just on that. I mean, we had a serious assault on a Broadstone driver there on the 27th of June. Uh, and there seems to be an epidemic uh, of antisocial behaviour, and particularly on public transport. I mean, unfortunately, the, the, the driver on Monday night was vulnerable because the bus he was driving had no security screen. Uh, we've been campaigning for all sorts of things for the protection of uh, bus drivers, uh, dedicated guard, uh, mm. mandatory minimum sentencing, uh, but at a minimum, like, there's an onus on the employer, which is bus Aiden, uh, under health and safety legislation to provide a safe place to work. Uh, there's, there's no security screen to protect that driver. They put a, a, a COVID screen in, which was a draw for a chair curtain uh, during the COVID pandemic, but that, that wouldn't stop anything. Uh, and the people responsible, look, it's the NTA, that a regulator and the authority. Uh, they have lovely premises up in Harcourt Terrace there with manned security. And yeah, the drivers, the buses on the front line, are expected to put up with this. Now, I, I've seen the video post this, uh, and uh, only for the bravery of the passengers, um, I, I, I fear that the, it could have been a lot worse. Uh, I mean, the, the, some of the passengers in this were very brave, and, and they prevented this individual from carrying on the assault. Oh, right. What happened? Yeah, the, the, the individual threatened the passengers and, and, and threatened to get uh, others involved uh, against the passengers. And, uh, but it, it's shocking. Mm. I mean, on, on a couple of, I've spoken about the mandatory minimum sentencing. Um, Simon Harris, when he stood in for Helen McAtee there, he increased the top end of sentences. But that's not what ourselves and the Garda represents associated with Connor for, mm. because that's not a deterrence to the, the people that carry out these atrocities. Where, where were the Garda on Monday after this assault? Well, look, I, I, I'm not going to be critical of the Garda. Um, we work closely with the Garda, and, and, and there's a resource issue there that, that they're not getting the numbers to Templemore uh, mm. for various reasons. You know, so, I, I understand though the guards were called uh, and they couldn't respond. Yeah, and, and again, I, I wouldn't be critical again. 
uh, our friends of the GRA and, and uh, ADSI. Mm. We're speaking to them, and it's just uh, people don't want to go into the guards, probably for some of the similar reasons that that the conditions and uh, of a guard of Connor for New York is, is very poor. Mm. Uh, the pay is very poor. And, and it's, it's not attracting. Well, why would you want to go into the guards to, to deal with this sort of behaviour? Okay, and I don't mean to be critical of the Gardaí, but when I say they couldn't respond, or, or they didn't respond, it was, they didn't respond because they couldn't respond because they were busy doing something else somewhere else uh, and didn't have the manpower, the resource to be able to respond to this uh, assault on a bus driver in RD uh, and my sources tell me that the bus driver um, was uh, the subject of another incident in Castle Bellingham uh, the week uh, before uh, uh, and didn't bother reporting it. That's the apathy that's out there like, right across the country on the rail network um, in, in, in parts of Limerick and parts of Cork in Navan, uh, and, and various bus routes in, mm. in, in Dublin. This sort of behaviour has become the norm, and, and people don't report it because it's just only another, mm. another attack, it's only another assault. Uh, mm. And, and Gardaí, uh, as I understand it, are, are um, looking for the assailant in this, uh, and uh, I presume if anybody was on that bus or have heard about this incident and know who this man is or more importantly where his whereabouts is uh, because I think he has been identified but can't be located I think the Gardaí would like to hear from them uh, Absolutely I mean, uh, I mean the, the footage I've seen and, and the, the, the CCTV footage on the, on the bus were clearly identified there, there was no Attempts made to conceal his identity. There was a film of it on Facebook at one stage as well, I think. There was, yeah. There was. Mm. There's, 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 there's WhatsApps uh, circulating. Right. But there's, there's a job here for the politicians because uh, not only in relation to the mandatory minimum sentence, and that's something they could carry out uh, uh, when the office returns immediately. Mm. Yeah. You know? But also, bus uh, have bylaws, and, and, and individuals that carry out these atrocities and are convicted are in danger. To, to, well, especially to my members, but also to other passengers, and they shouldn't have the the, the facility to travel on, on public transport anymore. I mean, you, you see, if you if you watch uh, Gaelic or or, or or soccer, if someone commits an offence in the stadium, they're banned for life. These people should be banned from public transport for life because they're, they're not fit to travel when they attack drivers uh, uh, like that. And, and again, the, the last security screen, like I'm in a date with crowds from, from my members that they don't want to drive mm. these vehicles to security screens, so we're going to have to reflect seriously on that. Right. And, and am, I, am I right in, in thinking um, that uh, the drivers are at the end of their tether in Dundalk? This is commonplace. Um, they're fed up uh, having to go to work, fearful of what condition they'll come home in or if they'll end up in a, a hospital bed. But it, it, it's not unique to Dundalk. It's not unique to Dundalk, um, but they're, they're fed up. But it's not just Dundalk. They're fed up. They're fed up in in the rail network. They're, they're fed up in in, in the urban centres. Uh, they're having to put with this nonsense on on a daily basis, and there doesn't seem to be. And the political classes, National Transport Authority, don't want to see do anything uh, to combat it. Okay, Tom, we'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, I'm sure uh, you'll have been heard by some of the politicians uh, who may be able to yield some influence over uh, how this is dealt with. Uh, But thanks for joining us today. Tom O'Connor of the NBRU. 
LMFM. Criminal barristers have taken a pay cut of more than 40% over the past 20 years and the fees they receive now are less than what they would have received in 2002. The result of this is that they're going to go on strike on the 3rd of October. Let's speak to Seamus Clark, Senior Counsel. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. You may use different terminology to the wording I use there, but essentially that's the story, isn't it? That's correct, Michael. Thank you very much for having me on this morning. Uh, I suppose the situation comes uh, back to the financial emergency that happened back in 2008 up to 2011. And at that point, barristers, criminal barristers doing both prosecution and defence work received pay reductions of approximately 30% at that particular time. And ever since that time, and particularly after 2016, when we were trying to get a restoration of the pay cuts that had happened, um, we've effectively hit a wall. There was a review group set up in 2018 under the auspices and sanction of the Department of Public Expenditure uh, with the DPT and the Department of Justice manning that particular report. And they said in their report that the flexibility provided by barristers um, was the same as the flexibility in the other public sector areas that had received restoration of pay, of pay and that the improvements that barristers provided in the administration of justice were effectively sufficient to allow restoration of pay to happen for barristers. And effectively, since that date in 2018, despite having support from the Ministers for Justice, various consecutive Ministers for Justice supporting the restoration of pay, the High Court President indicating that he understood that there was a serious effect on criminal justice moving forward because of the level of pay that was being paid. Unfortunately, the Department of Public Defender have not restored pay and we're left with this situation where, rising out of frustration, we are now seeking a mechanism, an independent mechanism to uh, have a, a meaningful and a binding and a time-limited uh, uh, mechanism to sort out these pay issues. Okay, there's over two months uh, before we get to the 3rd of uh, October, so a lot of time before you withdraw your services to find a resolution. If a resolution isn't found by the 3rd of uh, October, what will the withdrawal of your services mean? Well, I have to say it is with great regret that we have taken this measure that we will be we have recommended to our uh, to our members a withdrawal of service. But effectively, that means that in the higher courts and in the in the criminal courts, even at the district court level, that criminal barristers will will be highly unlikely to be attending court. There will be perhaps emergency measures where applications will have to be made and barristers will attend court for those. But in the vast majority of cases it's likely that there will be no criminal barristers attending court for those particular days. And we have obviously written to the various uh, bodies that are in charge of lists and the judges of the various courts, letting them know that. So there's plenty of time to deal with the situation should it arrive. But I should say we are hopeful that the government will uh, meet with us, they will discuss this issue with us, and that we will be able to resolve the issue, mm. um, hopefully before the 3rd of October. If that doesn't happen, unfortunately there will be... Uh, Okay, but so, of justice. sorry, Seamus, what does that mean? Uh, does it mean uh, that cases will be postponed? Uh, does it mean that cases will be struck off? Does it mean that people might end up uh, being tried without representation? Well, I suppose that's not for us to manage. That's for other members and stakeholders in the justice system to manage. And whether the cases will be just simply adjourned for one day or whether or not uh, matters will be uh, proceeding. It's a matter for other people. It's probably likely that matters will adjourn for one day, but that's not really for us to decide. But then there's the knock-on effect of that and I presume uh, that your dispute won't end on the 3rd of October if a resolution isn't found. 
No, it won't. And um, I suppose what we would say is that this is not really of our making, it's the making of the government who have, um, over a long period of time, not engaged this issue. I suppose the big point is that there is, in fact, a serious issue with uh, young members of the bar who are coming down and practising. We have statistics that say after six years, uh, two-thirds of barristers who do criminal law are no longer practising in criminal law. They've either left it to go to civil areas of law. Um, where it's more profitable and where more money is to be made or they've left the bar completely because the level of pay is so low that it's not just keep, it's not keeping barristers at the criminal bar and it's going to have serious long-term effects for getting barristers to do criminal cases. We already this year had a situation which arose in the Central Criminal Court where the Director of Public Prosecution was unable to secure senior counsel in two cases, one in Dublin and one in Limerick uh, and, and effectively the cases had to be adjourned for a period of time and I know in particular one of them, no senior counsel was available for the case where so junior counsel had to do a rape case on their own without a senior counsel involved in the case. So we're already seeing the effects of this. Mm. That should be of more concern to to your listeners that in fact the criminal justice system is suffering already and they will be suffering more in the future if the, the 2002 pay rates are being paid to bars, which as you said at the outset are in nominal terms 40% less because of inflation that has occurred since 2002. Okay. Um, people will be very concerned uh, because we're talking about serious crimes uh, and <laughs> the consequences unknown if you withdraw your services. But do you think that there will be much public sympathy or empathy for the position that you're in, given that it's a very well-paid profession? Well, well it's, it's, it's not actually a very well-paid okay. profession for the vast majority of people who are practising it. So, for example, uh, criminal law is probably the worst paid area of, of law as things currently stand. And there's a perception that all barristers are making a lot of money. But in fact, the vast majority of barristers, I think it's up to two-thirds of the barristers on the Criminal Legal Aid panel, are making less than the industrial wage or just at the industrial wage. So these are people who have spent a long time in education. They are, uh, after putting a lot of investment into their, their own education and to become a skilled advocate, and unfortunately they're not staying at the bar. So in fact, we find that there is a lot of sympathy from, from the public in relation to this issue. A lot of barristers are in the community. They're on the circuits in the Eastern Circuit, for example, uh, where your radio station is and they're working in everyday cases where people know that they are people just like everyone else who suffer with their mortgages and have payments to make and they're not making the big money that everybody might think they were making just because they're a barrister and I think the public understand that and they also understand the unfairness that other members of the public sector have got their pay restoration we're not looking for a pay rise we were looking for a pay restoration which every other member of the public sector got so when we go into a courtroom the judges have received their pay restoration the state solicitor has received their pay restoration the registrars, the probation officers have all received their pay restoration from that time over 15 years ago. And the barrister who's actually running the case is the only member in the courtroom who hasn't had a pay restoration. And who is your dispute with? Uh, because I imagine it spans a, a couple of departments or a number of ministers. Well, actually not. It's no, not a couple of departments. Just, just really is with the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform. Right. The Minister for Justice has been highly supportive of the situation of barristers over the last number of years. And in fact, Charlie Flanagan, uh, Minister Helen McEntee and Simon uh, Harris, when he was the Minister for Justice, have all supported us in relation to uh, our, our, our supported us in relation to our pay restoration. And in fact, the Minister for Justice has said that she it's very much in her agenda for the upcoming budgetary process to have discussions with Minister Donoghue. But unfortunately, we've heard this all before uh, over a long number of years and, and ultimately the Department of Public Expenditure has not seen fit to restore the, the pay uh, cuts to date. OK, well, there's a couple of months to go before you withdraw your services. It'll be a very serious thing, undoubtedly, if that happens. Thanks for joining us and explaining to us why uh, there's uh, the prospect of that. That's uh, Seamus Clark, SC. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
Now, let's rewind uh, the programme back uh, to the first hour. We were speaking with Fine Gael TD, Fergus O'Dowd, and during the conversation, we mentioned uh, the freedom of uh, Drogheda that was bestowed on Brother Edmund Garvey of uh, the Christian Brothers in 1997. Uh, As you heard, back in 1997, uh, Fergus O'Dowd was a member of what was then the Drogheda Corporation and would have voted in favour of bestowing this honour on Brother Garvey. There's been a lot of controversy, as listeners to this programme would be very much aware of in recent weeks. And I asked Fergus O'Dowd what he thought about the calls that have been made to rescind that honour for Brother Garvey. I, 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 I think he should hand it back, yes. I think he should. Um, because, I mean, it looks like that they've found a legal strategy that you have to sue every, I don't know how many Christian brothers, they all have to be sued individually, uh, uh, which is is a a mechanism for avoiding the truth and the integrity of, of, they have to accept responsibility for what they've done. And I think it would be morally acceptable if he did hand it back. You know, I, I think so, yes. Yes, okay. it would, yeah. Okay. Uh, as I say, I didn't mean to put you on the spot about that, but you did seem... You're not seem, on the spot, Michael. Yeah, I just want to... Yeah, I, 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 I actually hadn't you know. intended to ask you that myself. Uh, I just want to say yeah. something to you that you yeah. don't know. Uh, it, it, I, I had three uncles who were Christian brothers, right? Mm. Um, and and uh, when we were young, they were always, you know, they were always highly valued visitors to a home. They were all, to the best of my knowledge, good people. You know, and I've known a lot of Christian brothers in my life, and the vast majority of them were good. But the evil that has been done has damaged all of those people and damaged their reputation. And I think it would be appropriate that they would hand that back. And they have to rebuild their order in a new way. You know, if, if that's the case. Well, I just want to stress that point. So, okay. Uh, uh, and would you go further? Uh, should it be rescinded? Or should it be a voluntary uh, thing? Think whatever the process is, like, um, yeah. I, I'm not involved in the council. No, I understand. I, yeah, yeah. I, I don't have a problem. Yeah. I don't have a problem that he would. I think they should. Look, come here. Uh, I think he should, yes. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, that, or that the council rescind it if he doesn't. Yeah, I wouldn't have an issue with that, Michael, okay. at all. Sure. I think that would be appropriate at this stage. Right, I know you heard that <laughs> earlier in the morning, uh, but uh, I think uh, Damien O'Farrell, who represents uh, the victims of child sexual abuse at the hands of Christian brothers who are calling uh, for that honour to be rescinded, won't mind having heard it again. Uh, what did you think of that, Damien O'Farrell? It's very encouraging. Um, I know there's another one or two victims that are listening to me now and they're very emotional about this. Um, It's starting, our message is starting to get out there and it's taken nearly a year but people are starting to listen and I want to thank Fergus and I want to thank him for everything that he said on the radio this morning. It takes courage. Um, It takes courage. It seems, politically it seems to be against the flow. Um, what What the Sinn Féin party were trying to do the other day, they were trying to do that. They were trying to put an amendment on the on the CLAR that would ask him to, to hand it back. You know, that would be the first thing. I think there would be nothing wrong with that, and victims were supportive of that. But but I think, that, as I said the other day, the, the Labour Party blocked that. They didn't want to have this discussed. So there is a political um, will against this issue being discussed or happening. And, and we're disappointed with that, that people won't listen to survivors. And Colin McGorman was on your programme last week, and he said, we have to listen to what survivors are telling us. 
what they want. We have to stand with them. So I'm really, really encouraged. I think that's a little bit of momentum that will start. Fergus is only one voice. A significant significant voice, though, as uh, the TD for the county and the most uh, senior member of Fine Gael in County Louth. And indeed, uh, a, a member of the council that bestowed this honour on Brother Garvey back in 1997. Yeah, I think that is very significant. Um, I think it shows that, our, that what we're looking for, it's not outlandish. This is fairly reasonable. And I'm glad um, Fergus talked about good Christian brothers because I've, I've always mentioned good Christian brothers. They've done tremendous work. But Brother Garvey, decisions made, taken by Brother Garvey knowingly, and, and I've been in correspondence with him, and, and a lot of people have, and... And we had an RTE primetime program on this. These decisions are very, very hurtful um, to to victims. They're re-traumatising them. As I said, Ken had a tremendous victory yesterday in court. In court. I mentioned that he was listening to this program from, from he, he's one of the victims, Ken Grace. He was listening to your program from, from his car before he went into the high, high court for the umpteenth time. Um, and and he, he'll be he'll be he'll be very pleased this morning. Um, I, I know he's listening. So so look, it, it, it's tremendous news. And I really again want want to thank Fergus, and I want to thank the councillors that, that spoke up for us the other day: Thomas Sharkey, Connor Keelan, uh, Paddy McQuillan. Paddy McQuillan's very brave. Uh, Paddy McQuillan, he, he's the first, and I, and I hope others will, um, will will follow, and we can take this um, award from away from um, Brother Garvey because with, with the decisions he's made, and um, he he doesn't deserve it. I don't think. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, Damien, thank you uh, for making that case once uh, again and indeed reacting uh, to uh, that intervention uh, by Fine Gael TD, Fergus O'Dowd, and for joining us uh, this morning. Damien O'Farrell uh, is a representative for victims of child sexual abuse at the hands of the Christian Brothers, uh, indeed himself uh, a victim. Uh, and uh, I'm sure at this stage uh, people know uh, the problems that the brothers are causing to try to stop people from suing them. Uh, and they're using a legal loophole, as it's called. Uh, Tom texting us about that, uh, saying, uh, just like Brother Garvey handing back that honour, uh, shouldn't Michael Shine 
uh, be handing back his pension or be made to. Uh, I think probably a lot of people would agree with that, Tom. I don't think that it is possible to force uh, anybody to forego their pension. Uh, Eamon uh, in touch with us uh, from uh, earlier on uh, when we were talking about the assault on the bus driver uh, from Dundalk. Uh, he says it's the same on the Belfast train where there are northern teams playing in Crow Park. No security on the trains. Women and children afraid of their lives. Uh, another caller says it was two bus drivers who were attacked on Monday night. The second bus driver who came to his colleague's rescue was also hit. Uh, the Gardaí were called a couple of times and the AVL was contacted by the two bus drivers uh, on Monday night. The second driver who came to the first driver's rescue was then attacked by this man and was hit and flung against the side of the bus. Uh, as a matter of fact, the second driver saved his work colleague's life but also took a hammering himself by the attacker uh, and another person. The drivers are on their own. Michael, because on Monday night no one was around to help these two men or even organise to get them home after the attack. Not even management. God, didn't know that. That's uh, incredible. Thanks uh, for sharing that information with us. Uh, We were talking about Emily, the pseudonym for that elderly lady who was raped in her nursing home bed. It's hard to believe that the words, <laughs> those words are coming out of my mouth. Uh, it's so repugnant. Anyway, um, somebody uh, WhatsApping us, uh, and thank you uh, for your text, Angela. I think it is. She says, "Where was the trust and care? Why was there no management to investigate this? Even if you speak loudly, you're reported for trust and care. This is disgraceful behaviour, and everyone who hid it should be punished." Thank you uh, indeed uh, for that. I'm not sure that anybody was hiding it. I'm just, I just think people didn't believe it because it is so hard to believe that somebody would rape an elderly nursing home uh, uh, patient. Uh, I think anybody uh, who has any experience of dementia or nursing homes uh, knows uh, that patients uh, will tell all sorts of stories uh, and quite often they're not true and I think that there was this assumption um, which was wrong obviously uh, that they were talking nonsense. Uh, The guidelines say that the complaints of assault or sexual assault should be treated seriously no matter uh, how bad someone's dementia is or whatever the situation that those complaints should be investigated uh, and therein lies the fault Uh, and perhaps uh, the way this case is being highlighted and the two investigations into it will bring about that sort of change. We've another WhatsApp message from somebody who says, Michael, I I got an evening bus to Dundalk the other evening. It was a a lady driver, very nice, I I must say, but I I don't know what happened before I got on. There was a few in front of me, but when I got to her, she said the abuse she has had to put up with is unreal. The bus was full. Yeah, I don't know. I think there's all sorts of people who are are dealing with customers, uh, whether they're bus drivers or, uh, I don't know, working in shops or restaurants uh, who are uh, dealing with all sorts of uh, abuse on a a daily basis. I don't know. 
That just seems to be the way these days. Martin in RD on the phone to us saying Finnegale wanted to investigate the operations in RTA 25 years ago, but they couldn't because they weren't in power now. They are in government. Why don't they conduct this investigation now? Uh, thanks for that. Uh, I suppose they've sent in a forensic accountant and uh, there's a number of investigations underway. Uh, Mary says it's shocking to think that people can't just go about their work like that bus driver, without fear of violence. It was disgusting to hear what some bus drivers have to endure when they're at work. What kind of person thinks it's acceptable to verbally abuse or spit another person? Anyone found guilty of a crime like that should face a very long prison term. I can't imagine what Mary thinks they should face for punching somebody in the face when they're at work. Thank you, though, Mary, uh, for sharing your thoughts. Much appreciated. Uh, it's great to be uh, getting your comment like that. Uh, if you haven't made comment on the programme today and you think you'd like to add to what's been said, give us a call on 0419832000 or send us a text. The text number and the WhatsApp number is 0861800658. That's 0861800658 or email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Tomorrow morning, uh, the Minister for Enterprise, Trade and Employment, Simon Coveney, and the Minister of State, Neil Richmond, will attend uh, a meeting with uh, business groups at uh, the Pilo Hotel in Ashburn. It's being organised by the Fine Gael MEP, Colin Markey. Minister of State, Neil Richmond, is on the line. And uh, a very good morning to you, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of local business people who will have a, a lot to say to you. What's the purpose of this meeting from your perspective? Well, Mike, this is one of a half a dozen meetings we've had so far around the country with our MEPs, myself and Simon, meeting businesses in Cork, in Galway, in Waterford, in Kilkenny, in Dublin. And our latest stop is the Pila Hotel tomorrow morning. So we put the invite out to businesses across Mead, across Louth and indeed into Westmead to come in and have their say. We're not, we're not there to talk at them. We're there, we will have a series of sit-down roundtable for the first hour um, and then we'll go through the issues raised, take on board the concerns as we lead up into the budgetary cycle, point out some of the perhaps funding mechanism or supports that are already there and more importantly, have a real discussion with businesses of all sizes in each part of the country, particularly tomorrow in Ashburn, to go through the issues that they're facing and how the government can support better or what the government needs to do more of or indeed less of. Mike. All right, uh, just uh, by way of formalities, do people need to register? It's uh, from 8 to 10 tomorrow morning. Uh, it's right. It starts at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning as they go on to events.finnegale.ie. There's a registration page okay. there. Very good. And we'll repeat that uh, when we finish our conversation. As you say, this is uh, taking place in the run-up to the budgetary cycle. I imagine you'll be hearing a lot of concern from business groups about the minimum wage and the recommendation from uh, the Low Pay Commission. I've no doubt that'll come up. It's come up a number of times. We're actually, we still haven't officially received the the recommendation from the Low Pay Commission, even though I obviously acknowledge it was reported in newspapers yesterday, that's a piece of work that has to be done. It was done last year, it'll be done again this year. We are ultimately, Mike, building towards having the median um, wage, a living wage, by 2026 anyway. So we are moving along that process. But we'll, t- we'll look at the report from the Low Pay Commission when it does officially land and we'll go through it. But of course, take on board the concerns and indeed hopes 
of businesses and workers across the community when making a decision as a government. Okay, but the living wage currently stands at 13.10. We're talking about a minimum wage. If it is increased in line with the recommendation of 12.70 from January, which will be way below the living wage figure at the moment, uh, undoubtedly that will increase next year. Uh, I take it uh, government will accept this recommendation? Well, government will have to look at the recommendation and look at the justifications. Obviously, there was a recommendation to go up last year in line with interest rate if reports are true. And again, I have to say, uh, Mike, these are just reports. We haven't actually received an official recommendation yet. That's a recommendation of an increase, double um, the rate of interest in order to future-proof such a move. We are moving towards a living wage. We've stated consistently mm. that we're moving towards a living wage, but that's not going to be achieved in one jump. But you've already heard the arguments from business, uh, a 12% increase, uh, rate of inflation of uh, 5.5%. What are, what are you thinking of? Uh, I think was the message that went to the Commission. Uh, but uh, it would be very unusual for government not to accept a, a recommendation from the Low Pay Commission. It would indeed, Mike, but we have to, again, look through the full recommendation, not just reports about a recommendation in a newspaper. We have to look through the full uh, recommendation, look through the justifications and indeed weigh it up. There's another bit of work we've asked the Low Pay Commission to in relation to the sub-minimum rates whereby people under the age of 18 have a a lower um, minimum wage rate. So we've asked them to look at that as well. So there's quite a bit to consider in Mm. the coming weeks when we do receive the report. We, of course will weigh up the concerns of businesses, but also the concerns of workers. And that is the the difficult decisions that all of us in government seek to be in government to make. Okay, because there are, what, three or four different rates of minimum wage, depending on your age. Uh, Would you support a model that would have a a minimum wage, one rate for everybody, regardless of age? You know, I'll look at if there is any recommendation to change it. I see the justification in having the different rates because the, the skill set as a minimum for a 17-year-old would be very different to someone who's 19, 20 or 21. We have to look at does does increase minimum wage, not just increases the minimum wage or the sub-optimum uh, minimum wage, but it would drive up wages more generally. So mm. there's a lot to consider, but I have no issue with the current situation in terms of having different rates. It's actually the most common practice across the European Union. But of course... We have a commission of experts uh, put in place, independent experts, to provide government with recommendations and advice. And it's our responsibility to look at that recommendation, advice and consider it fully. Okay, so you'll be able to hear uh, the arguments business make against accepting the recommendation, but you won't be able to say whether that will happen or or not uh, when you're in the Pilo Hotel tomorrow. Well, some businesses actually might be in favour of the recommendation. Let's not forget that. Um, And there's a general acceptance that we are moving towards a living mm. living wage in a phased manner. We as a government have said we'll hit this by 2026. Others in the opposition or indeed in certain lobby groups want us to move straight away mm. to a 15 euro minimum wage rate as of the budget. Mm. That would be something that would be extremely reckless to take that big a jump. But a consistent move increasing the minimum wage is the stated aim of the government. And we want to make sure that we bring businesses along mm. on that journey. That we make it easy for them mm. and we look at where we can reduce costs and more importantly, provide government support to take the pinch out of um, energy bills in terms of retrofitting and other measures that they might, what other measures they want, that they want, might want to take to improve their businesses. Yeah, right. There's something wrong in a, a country where full-time workers are being underpaid 55 euro for a full working week. 
and if they were to get that increase of about €55 a week, they still wouldn't be able to afford the essentials necessary to live in this country. No, but it is a minimum wage. And actually, if you look at what the average industrial wage is and what the medium income, it's considerably higher. We have different minimum wages in each sector. So, for example, in the construction sector, it's a minimum wage of €19 an hour. But the average salary in the construction sector is €47 an hour. But we very much want to see, yes, we have the minimum wage, but it's a minimum. We want to see people earning much higher than that and having the ability to put more of their own money back in their pockets um, through more support from the government lower taxation rates and much else. Okay, the other issue I imagine that uh, is going to be raised uh, with you tomorrow will be uh, the VAT rate for hospitality. Uh, is that going to be restored to, to the 13.5% rate? That decision hasn't been made uh, completely yet. Obviously, we decided to extend what was the temporary measure to keep it at 9% uh, recently uh, or a number of months ago. That was after review, but if we keep that VAT at 9% for hospitality, that comes at a huge cost. That's €450 million Euro that we can't use on the rest of the economy. But also, is there a balance in it? Is that lower VAT rate? It might be extremely important for a local cafe, but is it as important for a large hotel, say, in Dublin city centre? So there's a few considerations in there. It's not just an arbitrary decision. Well, the lobby is being made very intensely, Mike, as you'd appreciate by mm. business owners across the country. I have no doubt it will be made tomorrow uh, again in the morning, and I'd welcome yeah. that. Um, but we'll take that decision in around looking at the impacts. You know, the reason why the rate was brought back down to 9% as an emergency measure was a reflection of such a, a, a hammering the hospitality sector took. Uh, during the COVID-19 emergency stage. So as we've moved out mm. of that emergency stage, we do have to look at that and it's a full consideration on the table, Mike. Mm, well, you'll get it in the ear from the public. Uh, I, I'm sure you'll agree with that. I don't imagine anybody would disagree with it if you continue to give tax breaks to hotels that are price gouging, charging up to a thousand euro when there's big events on in Dublin. On the other hand, they represent a very small percentage of the hospitality sector. Can they be separated? Well, that's something that I've certainly asked as a minister that we look at. That was the big discussion when we decided to extend it. Um, we didn't really have the time and the resources to separate in for the, the four-month period. That's something that's been looked at. At the end of the day, in about 35 minutes' time, Mike, an awful lot of your listeners will be queuing up for Taylor Swift tickets um, in Dublin, and we've already seen the massive hotel prices. That's not acceptable, and there's no way you can justify having a much lower VAT rate um, for businesses that are gauging to that extent, and it's a real concern. But the balance is that if I'm in a small cafe, as I was yesterday morning, in Dundalk or tomorrow in Ashburn after their hotel, that's a totally different story. So how do we break those off is the big task. Mm. Is the 9% retaining it? Is it justified for all hospitality? Can we separate it? Are we still in the emergency period? Can we redirect those funds to greater grants for supporting people with their energy bills uh, or other measures that businesses are facing? The VFI suggested here yesterday that one possibility is uh, to have one rate for accommodation uh, and a a separate rate uh, then uh, for those uh, involved in uh, food and beverages. Um, That wouldn't do anything for hotels outside of the capital that are not extorting people. No, and indeed not all hotels in the capital are extorting people either, and that must be stated, not just because I'm a TD from a Dublin constituency. But I think there is a need of balance, but there is clearly a differential differential for those who are perhaps solely in uh, the food provision, 
The differences then in food and alcohol provision, and we see the very disappointing decision by Diageo uh, yesterday to increase their prices. And then the difference again about the large major hotels, some of whom are charging high prices outside of Dublin, but it's a seasonal basis. So it's not the simplistic decision that, say, some people like to present that we simply should do everything to retain the VAT rate at 9% for hospitality. Is it fair? Is it equitable? Is it something we can afford? These are all decisions that are being considered at the moment and I have no doubt and I would really welcome the input from as many businesses tomorrow morning in the Pita Hotel. They'll have their say and we'll take it all on board and see what is feasible within the constraints of the budget bike. Alright, well, I mean, there's a, a lot of people concerned uh, about uh, the reputation internationally of uh, this country in terms of hospitality, ironically because of the greed of some of those in hospitality uh, and how it is deterring people coming here well, I think it's quite be something to be quite say that, Mike. We we may say that, but Dublin two weeks ago was voted the best city in the world to visit for uh, a weekend break. Ireland is ranked consistently in one of the top ten countries as a tourist destination for people coming from the United States. No, but sure, Dublin is the great. Sure, sure Dublin is the best city in the world. But it is the best city. But that doesn't make it any less expensive, and that's the point like that it I was making. You're talk- no, the point you're making is our reputation being tarnished. Yes, but yeah, we're seeing our reputation go up. So I think it's just important to balance. Yes, we have very real concerns with pricing, but Ireland is still one of the world's finest tourist destinations, mainly because of the people working in that sector. So we need to balance that. Yeah. Well, don't tell me that a ten or a pint is not a rip-off, or don't tell me that uh, 400 or 1,000 euro isn't a rip-off and that people are happy and they're going home delighted. And that is undoubtedly... Je- Mike, let's not do down the country at the same time. No, There's no, a balance no. in saying something's wrong and then saying people, you're saying that people are worried our reputation is being damaged. Yet we're seeing more tourist numbers going. We're going to have 40,000 Americans coming for an American football thing across the country I know. in three mm. weeks. But will they come back? Will they come back? Well, the 35,000 came last year. 40,000 are coming this year. Are they the same people? Or, 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 you know, is it a case of uh, you're not going to make a fool out of me twice and eventually uh, there's not enough fools in the world to have a hospitality industry? And therein lies uh, the concern. Uh, Whether it's... uh, a valid concern or, or not, we could argue all day, but there is no doubt that that is a concern. You mentioned Diageo. We're going to be talking about that price increase after this conversation because the publicans are, are very concerned. I take it from what you said, you're very concerned and that this could lead to that 10 euro pint in uh, Temple Bar going to 10.50 or 11 euro. Yeah, and I think there's a real concern that um, this increase will affect smaller pubs in more isolated areas to a greater extent. I've spoken already with the vintners, they've already been in touch my office. It is a concern. Price increases in general on food and beverage and alcohol are always a concern. It has to be a justifiable increase. And I understand the concern with the vintners and the customers for we want to see if people are taking alcohol, it's much more preferable that they're doing it in a pub or in a restaurant setting necessarily than at home for lots of different reasons. So I think the vintners have a, a case that they need to discuss with, uh, with any companies that are increasing it. But I think the central point I'll make, Mike, and I'll leave it at this, we are right to be concerned about prices. We are right to always say that we need to make sure that we remain a competitive tourist destination. But we always have to provide the balance that this is a great country to visit and to provide a tourist offering that is in the top 10 in the world, regardless if that's in Dublin, now, Meath, the Wild Atlantic Way or where else. All right. Well, if people want to meet with you and Minister Coveney tomorrow, uh, it's at the Pilo Hotel in Ashburn being organised by Colin Markey Finnegale, MEP. It starts at 8 o'clock in the morning. 
will run till 10 and people can register at finnegale.ie. Minister, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. That is the Minister of State with Responsibility for Employment Affairs and Retail, Neil Richmond. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, you just heard Minister Neil Richmond uh, say he's concerned about uh, the price increase announced by Diageo yesterday and that vintners are right to be concerned and that they have a case to make and that they should be making that case. Colette Nugent, manager of the Market Bar in Drogheda, represents the VFI in Loud and she's on the line. Colette, how concerned are you? Oh, good morning, Michael and everybody in LMFM land. Concerned isn't the word now at this stage. I mean, how much more is, you know, the public going to take and, and our industry as a whole? You know, yet again, it's another increase. We had one, what was it, February, and now this one again. You know, we're going to be asking the ASIO to reconsider this because, I mean, while there's never a good time for a price increase or, you know, invariably at all, mm. this is the middle of summer, well, alleged summer, and our tourist season. So what you were previously saying there, you know, about giving a good impression to people coming into the country. I mean, there's no end to this. Globally, we are taking, everybody is like accept, expecting almost constant and continuing increases across the board. And there's no end to it. Mm. But, you know, the problem that we face in our industry is we are behind the bar and the customer coming to the counter and at the tap. While that's reported in the media as four cents, the majority of them will not think it's four cents, it's going to be five cent increase. They don't understand the VAT included in that. Right. So invariably mm. that will probably, that will be 10 cents because you round it off. Mm. But that's actually not the full figure to some places. Now it's all relative to each premises and each business. But if we were to include an actual margin and cover those costs as well into it, that could be actually up anything up to 15 cent of an increase. Right. But that's across the board on all the Azure products. Like some people might assume, because I mean, at the end of the day, everyone's not in their business and not everybody's clued into switching what's, how this, the machination, machinations of this work. So they're assuming that there's a pint of Guinness that's gone up. So it's global, it's across their product line that's gone up. And what's infuriating to most people is, we understand that our customer coming into us has struggled with uh, mortgage increases, uh, cost of living, uh, you know, petrol, mm. heating, all those things, and we try to absorb the cost as much as we can. There's very few, if any, pub in this country is going to be able to, to absorb a 10 cent uh, increase. Mm. Not the way that everything is, because it's costing us, you know, three and four times as much as it was in 2019 to run a business now. So, with so, so, so you'll have to charge the 5, 10 or no 15 cent charges. increase, yeah. whatever it is. But does it really matter to people? Sure, it's only pittance, isn't it? I mean, even if you had 10 pints in a, a week at an extra 15 cent a, a, a pint, it's only 150. I, I'm Surely everybody can afford that. Sure. And you know something? There will be bigger venues, busier venues out there that it won't even, you know, as the, my father used to say, God be good to him, don't worry about the price increase, daughter. As long as it doesn't go scarce, we don't care what price it is. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. You know, and there mm. will be that, 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 that catchment that, you know, the old uh, millennials, as we call them, the tappity tap tap on the card machine. They don't even look at it. But, you know, I'm still the old uh, fashioned, uh, still family run place where the customer checks their change. Mm. They have the exact money to me at the counter. 
that, that, that 10 cent will be discussed and it will be me that will get it in the neck and the likes of me that's behind the, the, the beer tap yeah. saying, oh, the greedy publicans at it again. What mm. they don't see is, and what's infuri- another infuriation for me is that the you 4 billion globally pre-tax profits last year. Mm. Like, you mean... Well, you're not asking them to give up their profits, are you? I mean, the... No, naturally, I'm not asking I mean, them to give up their profits. It, it, and I understand that their their cost has gone up, you know, to, to yeah. buy the produce in, I guess. Is that. it the greedy publicans, though, or, or, or the mean old punters uh, who are afraid or too mean to hand over a few cent extra on the cost of a, a no, pint? I, I mean, don't really think it's either of them, yeah. Michael. Yeah. i tell you what it is. I think we're all getting so disillusioned with mm. expecting increases all the time. That but that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, everything has gone through the roof uh, and you don't pay what you used to pay for anything anymore so it's only to be expected that the price of a pint will go up yeah but why why has it to be expected again we already had an increase earlier in the year yeah because like you Diageo because like you Diageo has uh, increased electricity costs or whatever else uh, it it is uh, that they have to pay out to to run their business yeah but like Diageo they're not running on the margins at the market but ours running on or they're not running on on, not just I'm not even going to you know on about me Mm. you have to remember the majority of publicans at the moment have struggled since since the the pandemic and while some have been have been very lucky and reinvented themselves and, you know, gone out in a different uh, uh, way of, of, of thought process of, yeah. of dealing with their business. Some are still staying at doing what they always done. There was no point in reinventing the wheel. If it's not broke, don't fix it. Okay. So there's a different, it's a different animal now. You can't approach this horse head on now. You have to approach it from the side. And we're, we're, we're dealing with a different mindset. The customers that used to come out are not out still, Michael. So your customer that you have is valuable. It's a a valuable commodity that needs to be minded. But, you know, we can't just expect that it's acceptable Mm. to say, oh, your bread has gone up and ESB has gone up and petrol has gone up. I'm sure why wouldn't the pint go up? It's only 10 pence. But look, we were told in February that it was the end of the world uh, when Diageo increased uh, the prices by 12 cent. It's 4 cent this time. Uh, and the Republicans saying they were going to stop stocking Diageo products, uh, but that's impossible because you say uh, they've so many uh, different uh, brands and uh, types of drink and so on. Uh, but it wasn't the end of the world. In fact, AIB released uh, data yesterday saying that in June, spending in pubs increased 28% month on month. And 72% of that, or sorry, 75% of that, Diageo has cornered the market. Mm. More than they've ever did. Heineken Ireland used to be the biggest one in, in Ireland as a company, as a, you know, as an That's entity. That's Diageo now, isn't it? And Diageo now is way ahead. They've come out flying colours across from their product market that they, they're putting out there. Okay, do they so not own, they don't own Heineken, do they not, no? No, no, no. Oh, Heineken is yeah. Heineken Ireland. They're entirely different. It's a bigger company. Oh, right, you okay. look at it from a portfolio point of yeah. view. But mm-hmm. they used to have the, 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 the lion's share of the market, we'll say. Mm-hmm. But now Guinness, or Diageo, as a global brand, has taken over that. Right, okay. For the first time. Mm. But, and know, is, is, Heine, is, is Heineken increasing prices in line down with Diageo? We're all, they're both now in line. Right, and that's why Guinness are, you know, expecting, well, we have to be in line with our competitors, blah, blah, blah. Well, mm. why didn't you put it up the, the first time when you were going to do it? You know, instead of this, uh, you know, insidious sort of, we'll do it now and we'll do it again. 
I mean, and as I said at the top, there's no, there's no good time to increase anything. Mm. But the reality is, how much more is it going to, how much more do they expect people to take? Okay. Because, I mean, if you think about the average person, so if you went out twice a week, Michael, we'll take you, for example. If you, mm. were, if you originally used to go out twice a week, yep. now you're only in a position to go out once a week. Okay. Because your, your wage has, hasn't changed coming into the household. Yeah. But your expenditure has has ri- risen, which is effectively a pay cut. Yeah, exactly. Mm. That's exactly where my thought process are on it. And and I, I understand that they have these you know teams of mathematicians that can mm. do all these things up in the Azure or anywhere else for that matter. The problem is, Michael, for our industry, what else is coming? See, we have a V eight. Is the VAT going to go up? Are we, mm. Our minimum wage has gone up, so our mm. labour cost has gone up. Mm. And if ever there was a time now to call for excise duty to be reduced, it's now. We're still the dearest in Europe for our excise duty. And they've never, ever addressed it. And now that we're, because we're fighting to keep the, the 9% hospitality uh, rate, that isn't going to, that's no good to the, to, the, to the wet pubs. So if we actually left the hospitality rate back up to what it was, and we went and it decreased. I won't be popular for saying this, I can assure you with my friends. And we decrease our excise. It, it, it would help all of us in the, hus- in, in the industry because some of us don't serve food. So therefore, the ones that do serve food are still serving alcohol. So a reduction in, our, in, the, in the excise duty is the way to be fighting this, which we are continuing to fight in it. But I mean, you know, where, where, where do we keep going banging this drum? Because we're the ones that look like the greedy publicans, as you said yourself. All right, we'll leave it there, Colette. Um, there's strong arguments, no doubt. Uh, the publicans will be making them, as the Minister suggested, with Diageo before the price increases come into effect in August. Thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, this morning on the programme. Colette Nugent is the manager of the Market Bar in Drogheda, representing uh, the VFI in County Louth. Uh, some WhatsApp messages. Uh, somebody says, the Americans are coming here because they get great value with the dollar. The dollar and the euro are nearly equal. Uh, another WhatsApp message from somebody who says, nothing like a nice bit of what I would call casual free statism of a Thursday morning from your contributor who mentioned the behaviour of some supporters of Northern teams en route to Crow Park. Uh, thanks uh, for that. I think there is a problem because uh, the Enterprise has a bar and uh, people come on. Uh, I don't think it's because they're from the north. I think you get it uh, coming from Dublin in the evenings then where people have had drinks and then they're drinking in the bar and so on. Uh, Betty Daly in touch uh, saying, uh, good morning, Michael. The tourists coming here to the land of leprechauns will need a pot of gold for spending money. Thanks uh, for that. Well said, Michael, says Tony and Trim. Make hay when the sun shines. It won't happen next year. Why do so few hotels and pubs spoil it for everyone? I used to be eating out regularly on Sundays, but couldn't be bothered now. Thank you for that. Uh, James says, the sense of self-entitlement and lack of the most basic courtesy for from people in present times is disgusting. As a student nurse, I've taken horrendous verbal and physical abuse and threats from people 
and can empathise with the bus drivers you've mentioned. The people who perpetrate these offences should face much harsher penalties. Uh, somebody else, uh, this is Baz, who says, if beer was essential, is it not essential, Baz? I jest. He says, if beer was essential, the social would be giving beer. That's the social welfare, I take it. Thank you. Beer vouchers. Thank you, Baz, uh, for that uh, and to everybody who's been in touch with us today. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Members of On Garda Siakana currently work four days and then get four days off. That's going to change in November and Gardaí will work six days and then get four days off. The difference is uh, that instead of working 12-hour shifts, they'll be working 10-hour shifts and returning to the rosters that were in place before COVID. The Garda Representative Association is not happy with this change. Tara McManus is uh, the Assistant General Secretary and joins us now. And good morning to you and thanks for for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. There are shorter days uh, and it is or used to be always the way it had been. Uh, Why are 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 Gardaí at loggerheads with the Commissioner? Good morning, Michael. Um, Yes, so I suppose this has kind of sprung on us um, on on Tuesday afternoon. Um, The Commissioner gave us an hour's notice and told us that um, as of the 6th of November that we would be reverting back to the pre-COVID roster. And as you explained there, that is a six-day-on, four-day-off pattern of 10-hour shifts for all members, and that goes across a 10-week cycle. Now, the issue we have is that in order to revert back to this particular roster, this requires the creation and deployment of five units. Um, We are currently working on a four-unit basis with our four days on, four days off. So at any one time, you have a unit working from 7 in the morning to 7 in the evening, and then another unit comes in, picks up 7 in the evening until 7 in the morning, and you have 24-hour cover provided in that way. So if I, was, if I was to give you an example, for instance, if we, if we said Drogheda Garda Station has four units and let's say there are 10 guards on each of those units, in order to create this new roster, or the old roster, should I say, we would have to take two guards from each of those four units to create our fifth unit. So essentially now we have less members working on a particular unit. So instead of 10 members being available to work on Unit A, we now have five units with only eight members. So straight away, you know, we have less members working. This old system as well also has crossover. So for instance, on a Monday afternoon, you have two units that actually cross over. So you could have anything up to 16 guards on a Monday afternoon where there isn't the demand for those members. And on a Friday night and a Saturday night, which we know are the busiest times for public order and for all those sorts of incidents, you have only one unit working. There isn't a crossover. So this is our main concern. We're also concerned that in 2022, the commissioner stated to us that he did not have the sufficient numbers to resort the fifth unit. This year now, in 2023, we have even less members. We are 300 members less or shorter than we were um, this time last year. And of course, that's as a result of a very well-publicised retention and recruitment crisis that the GRA have been talking about for quite some time. So we would believe that a return to the pre-COVID roster would have a very negative impact on our members' well-being with less members on the ground at any given time. Mm. We have a continued and an escalated dependence on overtime, particularly in the big urban areas. You know, stations are pretty Mm. much being ran on overtime at the moment, particularly because we're in the summer period. There's a large demand on on members to take holidays and to take leave. 
And we really feel this will have a seriously damaging effect on our members' work-life balance. And of course, well, they will be required to attend work up to 25 extra days per year because they're going to be working six days instead of four. And of course, that comes at a time when our members are continuing to struggle with a cost of living crisis, extra costs in childcare, travel and other work-related expenses that we're kind of used to. Okay, but it's... uh the same in terms of uh, the number of hours any individual guardee will work in a, a single week, is it not? Well, currently, across a 10-week cycle, yeah, you would end up mm. working the same amount of hours. It's in and so around ha- the same. how do you end up with fewer guardee at certain times? Because we'll have to create a fifth unit, Michael, mm. in order for those six tourists to, to uh, effectively work uh, in what in the Commissioner, what he has described as the pre-COVID roster. Now, it is worth noting that back in January, uh, the GRA actually approached both Garda Management and the Conciliation at the Council at a time when we were in roster negotiations. We had our own proposed alternative roster, which would have seen the continuation of the 12-hour, four-on-four-off mm. roster across the core units, but we introduced a 10-hour shift pattern for the specialised units. So that's your detectives, your community police, and, and, you know, any of those specialised units, that they would continue to work the 10-hour. And we saw that as a very viable and a very acceptable roster, but the Commissioner didn't entertain it, he didn't even acknowledge it, but has brought us back to where we are now pre-COVID. So we are very, very concerned about how this will actually work on the ground. But we're talking about crossovers there, where you might have 16 instead of 10, um, and on a Saturday night you're understaffed. Uh, could you not have the crossover on a Saturday night? The way the roster is actually worked in order to ensure that everybody has sufficient rest periods, it doesn't work any other way. Because we'll say the late shift changes on a Saturday night. Instead of starting at 12 in the afternoon, you now start at 3 in the mm. afternoon, or indeed you start at 5 in the afternoon. So therefore the early units, they're finished, they're gone at five o'clock. So that crossover is eliminated because you've changed the start times in order to facilitate the fact that it is a Friday and a Saturday night. So this roster was in place for a, a, a long number of years and that was always the problem, was the lack of cover on a Friday night and a Saturday night when it was needed most. OK, they're very long shifts. Are they not too long anyway? Uh, I mean, how do you have the energy after 12 hours uh, to break up a a melee or run after a shoplifter? Well, a lot of the members would say that if you're in for 10 hours, you might as well stay and be in for 12 hours and then you're cutting the amount of days down that you actually have to come to work. Otherwise, you know, and a lot of our members are living long distances away from Mm. where they actually work because they can't afford to live, we'll say, in urban areas, even like Drahada or Dundalk, or or particularly, we'll say, in in Dublin. Members cannot afford to live, for instance, if they're stationed in Blanchardstown. They probably can't afford to rent a house in Blanchardstown. They're perhaps living in Mm. Navan. Is is that devising rosters that will suit uh, the individual guardies' personal preferences or... Uh, should they be done to serve the public? Well, at the moment, we would say that the, 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 the current way that we're working, the four-on, four-off, that is serving the public because there are there is 24-hour cover, guards are coming in. From a personal point mm. of view, guards like the work-life balance that they have with 12-hour shifts. We have a lot of couples within on Gardaí who have children between them. They can work out this roster. Mm. I'll come in and I'll work 7 to 7 today. You'll work 7 to 7 tonight. Mm. And there's somebody with our children at all times. If we go back to the 6 on 4 off, 
that doesn't happen and yeah. that's going to cause particular problems. But we have a new generation, Michael, yeah. of younger of younger guards that have come in and international research would tell us that this younger generation, their biggest issue is work-life balance and if they do not have a work-life balance, they will leave on Garda Síochána. Mm. I've spoken to you before about the exit interviews that I'm currently doing with members who have left. I'm almost finished that research and work-life balance still comes up as one of the main yeah, reasons. 469 members of the force left last year uh, but I still can't help but wonder like, if you get tired, what happens after 10 hours, for example, um, instead of responding to a, a call, would you be tempted to go and get a coffee? Absolutely. I mean, you know, anyone, anyone who's an emergency worker will tell you that they survive on coffee. That's that's a given. But, but, but get a coffee instead of responding to a call because you're just oh, so tired. Absolutely not. No, absolutely not. I mean, you know, we have such excellent people working within Angardishi Econo. When they receive an emergency call like that and a member of the public is in desperate need of help and support, the guards will always be there. And we have shown that all down through the years. We particularly showed that around the Biden visit. We got very little notice of where members needed to be, at what time everybody showed up. That Biden visit went by, went by you know, with absolutely okay. no hitches, no problems. On Garda Econ, our members will always step up to the plate with regards to that. It's a, it sounds as though the Commissioner has a, a battle on his hands with uh, the members of the force. I have to leave it there. I'm out of time, but thank you for your time and uh, joining us uh, this morning. Tara McManus, Assistant General Secretary of the Garda Representative Association, the GRA. Maggie McGuire received research today. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie.